Good morning, family. David, thank you for those songs, and especially that last one. Uh, I don't think I need to preach this sermon, because that song did such a good job about my favorite angel, the angel named Harold. He was my, my favorite one yet. No, no, that's bad. Yeah. <laughs> All right, good morning, everybody. We are in John chapter 11 this morning. We continue our journey through the Gospel of John, and I want to encourage you to turn over there. This is um, it's one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture, and I hope you'll see why as we travel through it together. It is a lengthy narrative, and so I really wish for time's sake we could cover the whole chapter in one lesson, uh, but we're not going to do that. We're going to try to get through kind of the first half this morning and then finish it next week. In John chapter 11, following on the heels of what we read about in John chapter 10, if you remember our lesson last week in John chapter 10, as a group of Jewish authorities press in on him and just ask him bluntly, look, if you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. And Jesus points them back to the ministry as they've seen it unfold so far. And he reminds them, I have told you. And the way that he has told them is through the works that he has done in a public setting. And so he says, the works I do in my Father's name testify about me. These works tell you plainly who I am. And if you recall last week, we talked about the way that John crafts his narrative in his gospel is that he carefully includes seven signs, seven of the miraculous works that Jesus performs during his earthly ministry. And so here's a list of them. We talked about them last week. They begin in John chapter 2, where he turns the water into wine. And they end here in chapter 11 with this, the seventh and final of the signs that John records for us with the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And so if you look at the way John talks about Jesus' earthly ministry, it begins at a wedding and ends at a funeral. And it's that funeral we're going to talk about this morning here in John chapter 11. I'll remind you once again, I know we've looked at this passage a lot, but I want to continually remind you of it. How does John decide what to include in his gospel account. And so if you look at the end of his gospel, John 20, 30, and 31, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have what? Life in his name. So John is very careful in what he includes regarding the signs of Jesus. There's a whole lot he could have included. He narrows it down to seven because he's trying to bring us to faith. Faith in the name of Christ, and by coming to faith in the name of Christ, we might have life in the name of Christ. And so, as we get to chapter 11 here, this chapter is truly the climax of Jesus' public ministry. We're only just halfway in the Gospel of John, but already John is bringing his earthly ministry to a close and transitioning into what is just the last little bit of Jesus' life. John spends a lot of time on the last week of Jesus' life. But here in chapter 11, we get to the climax of Jesus' public ministry, and it concludes with the most dramatic and most awesome of all of his signs. And so we'll get into the text in John chapter 11. John chapter 11 begins like this. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. This is the first time we're introduced to this character named Lazarus. He was from Bethany, the village of 
Mary and her sister Martha. These three are siblings and they have a very close relationship with Jesus. We'll see how he describes that in just a second. But John says this Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. And if you're asking yourself, well, where in John's gospel is that? I don't remember reading that yet. It's because we haven't. That actually is recorded for us in the following chapter. In chapter 12 is where John records that. And so I think John is doing two things. He's pointing us forward to what he's going to tell us next. But I think he's also, as we've seen several times before, telling us that he is interacting with the other gospel accounts. And he expects us to be familiar with those other gospel accounts. The synoptics talk about this story, John is saying, so I know you know it. This is that same Mary that is recorded in that story. It says, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord, wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Just dwell on that terminology for a moment. The one you love is sick is sick. Jesus clearly has a close relationship with this man Lazarus, and not only him, but his sisters as well, as we'll find in the next passage here. So we continue on in verse 4. When Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness, listen, this sickness will not end in death. He does not say Lazarus will not die. He says this sickness will not end in death. Death is not the final result of the illness that Lazarus is currently suffering. Death will not have the final say here. And in that statement alone, Jesus sets up for us the drama that's about to unfold in this chapter. This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. What is about to transpire is for the glory of God and His Son Christ. Something is about to take place that will bring glory to God through what Jesus is about to accomplish. So it's kind of like the conversation that Jesus had with his disciples when they said, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would end up blind like this? And you remember what Jesus said, it's not for those reasons, but so that God's glory might be shown. It's the same thing here. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Second time. In just a few verses, John points that out to us. Very special relationship Jesus has with these three siblings. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, and this is surprising, because you would think, okay, he loves these people so much, so when he heard that he was sick, he did what? He packed up his things and he immediately traveled to see him. But that's not what we read. Instead, we read this. When he heard Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. Why would he do that? Why would Jesus purposely wait two more days before traveling to see his gravely ill friend who he loves so much? Well, you've got two options in interpreting Jesus' behavior here. Number one, he's being careless and callous. He's just, ah, it's not that big of a deal. It's not that important to me. But that's not how you react to the news that someone you love very much is gravely ill, is it? You take that seriously and you act immediately. So clearly that's not the case. What is Jesus doing there? Well, I think he's acting very intentionally here, as the text would indicate. He knows 
that God's glory is about to be revealed through what he is going to do, and so he's waiting so that God's will might be accomplished. But in the moment, that must be hard to understand. And it must be hard for him to do, even knowing what he's going to accomplish, to wait two days before you go see your friend who is gravely ill. Imagine the trust he must have in the will of the Father in order to do that. The disciples are surprised, not that he waited, but that he wants to go back to Judea. Because they rightly point out here in verse 8, but Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews there tried to stone you, and you want to go back? They're not misguided in their apprehension here. Why would we go back to a place where very clearly they have their minds set on putting you to death? Why would we put ourselves in that kind of situation? Well, two things. Number one, that Jesus is willing to do that. In fact, what we see unfold is that what happens here in chapter 11 is the final straw, as it were. It's because of what Jesus does with Lazarus in this chapter that the Jewish authorities make the final decision. He must be put to death. So there is great danger awaiting Jesus as a result of his decision to go back to Judea. But he's not concerned about that. He's concerned about the will of the Father and that God's glory is revealed through what he's about to accomplish. But also, listen to what he responds to them with. He says, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. And of course, we all know what he means, right? Or do we? <laughs> Imagine being his disciples in that moment and going, uh-huh, what? I imagine they had a lot of moments like that. But I would remind you of one other thing he said a lot like this in John chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. As long as it is day, he said, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. I think he's saying exactly the same thing. Look, don't be concerned with what our opponents might do to us. Concern yourself only with the fact that you are with me and I am the light of the world and I am about my Father's business. Concern yourself with that. Daylight is here. Take the opportunity to walk in the daylight because night is fast approaching. And so we've got work to do, is his response. After he said this in verse 11, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. And I want you to see kind of the progression of the language in this chapter. First, Lazarus is sick. Now Jesus is telling them he has fallen asleep. But I'm going there, listen to his language, to wake him up. Now Jesus is referring to more than just Lazarus is taking a nap here. This is a euphemism that he's introducing to us for death. And we're going to talk more about this in just a moment. But we find this scattered throughout Scripture, that for us who are in Christ, death becomes sleep. Because what happens at the end of sleep? You wake up. And that's exactly why he uses this euphemism. I'm going there to wake him up. Now, of course, his apostles, again, are confused by the language. So his disciples reply, Lord, if he's just sleeping, he's going to what? He's going to get better. Why are we going there if all he's doing is taking a long nap? They're confused. But ironically, in their confusion, they actually make a statement of great truth. He will get 
better. He will, but not because he's taking a nap. Because Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, is on his way to make him better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly. Okay, so the language progresses. They don't get it. He's going to help them understand. Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So as the apostles sometimes do, they go from disbelief to confusion to great statements of, of, of anticipation and, and great proclamations of their desire to follow along with Jesus. And so Thomas, also known as Didymus, and it's interesting to me, this sounds like something Peter would normally say, right? In fact, he did say as much at the end of the synoptics, but this is what Thomas says. He says to the rest of the disciples, let's go too so that we may die with him. They're zealous. They're ready even to go and die with Jesus, at least they think they are, right? We know when then that moment comes that they're not prepared for what they see. But in that moment, they're excited. They're zealous. Let's go with him. Because even if death is required of us, we are ready to do that. Of course, Thomas doesn't know what he's talking about at this point in time. I want to take a minute, though. Let's pause in the narrative here. And I want us to do something we don't like doing. I want us to think about death. Not the thinking part. I know you're comfortable doing that. I want us to think specifically about death. We don't like doing that, do we? We're not comfortable with that conversation. We don't like confronting the reality of death. How are we encouraged through Scripture to think about death? Sometimes people in the world will say as a matter of solace, death is just a natural part of life. Is that true? Genesis chapter 3 and verse 19, as a result of the fall, as a result of the sin in the garden, as God is issuing judgment on the serpent, he addresses the reality for the woman moving forward, and then he turns his attention to man and he says, by the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Your relationship with the ground is fundamentally changed. In the garden, in my presence, you are to tend to the ground, and the ground gave you what you needed, but you're going to have to start working. And that work is not going to be pleasant. He says, you're going to eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Suddenly there is a conversation in Scripture about the fact that life is terminal. There is an end to living on the earth. And man came from dust, and now to dust he will return. But that is part of the curse, and that is part of the fall. We see just a couple verses later in verse 22, the Lord said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree in life of life and eat it and live forever. And so God cuts man off from access to the garden and specifically the tree of life. Immortality is no longer within man's reach. There is an end to life. And death is now a reality. Paul talks about this in his letter to the Romans. In reflecting on that very event, he says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all 
people because all people sinned. When was death introduced to God's creation? It was as a result of sin. It came at the fall, and Paul is reflecting on this and saying, all of us now deal with the reality of death because we live in a world characterized by sin. God's good creation has been corrupted, and now death is a reality for all of us. Later on in chapter 8, one of my favorite chapters, we talked about this last week in fact, Paul begins to talk about the anticipation we have of something more, something better, a release from that curse. He says, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope, listen to what he says, that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. The creation itself has been corrupted by sin, and creation itself is longing to be freed from that corruption. In verses 22 and 23, he goes on, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, Paul says, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Why does he focus in on our bodies? Because these bodies in a fallen world do what? They decay. Like the earth decays. Everything is in the throes of corruption and everything will see an end. And Paul says, we're all groaning, all of us individually and collectively are groaning right alongside creation. Why? Because creation wasn't designed for decay. And our bodies weren't designed for death. That was not a part of God's good creation. That is a reality that exists because we live in a fallen world. But we are all groaning together for something better. Something better. A freedom from that curse. And so you get to the end of Scripture, in the book of Revelation, and listen to what happens at the end of Revelation chapter 20. What happens? Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Death and the place where the dead are held, are destroyed by God. Death is brought to an end. And then in the very next chapter, as we're introduced to the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven to earth, we get this place where we get to exist alongside God forever again as he's describing what that place will be like. A new Jerusalem after death has been destroyed. Listen to what he says. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death. There will be no more death. In the new Jerusalem, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. An undoing of the curse in freedom from that corruption. Death is no longer a reality in the new Jerusalem, but we still live here where death is a reality. And so how do we process that reality now? How do we think about death as disciples of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 20, if you turn over there with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 20. But Christ has indeed, Paul says, 
been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have, and here he borrows Jesus' own terminology, the first fruits of those who've done what? Who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in turn. Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. Listen to what he says, verse 25, for he, has, he, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Another euphemism for what? Stomping your enemies into the ground until he has reached total victory. And then let's just end with this verse here, verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is what? Death itself. That death is framed in scripture as the enemy. It is the problem we cannot overcome on our own. And we'll talk more about that next week. We can't do it. We can do everything we can to prolong life but eventually we all face death as a reality. That is not what we were created for. And so death remains an enemy in Christ, though. Death is transfigured. We're able to see death in a different light. And because of that, we're able to live life in a different way. Death is still the enemy. But it's an enemy with no sting. It's an enemy who has been robbed of its power. We still face the reality of physical death until we wait for his return. But that, that reality of physical death does not hold power over us the way it did before we knew Christ. Romans 5 again. For if by the trespass of one man, again, going back to Genesis 3, death reigned through that one man, how much more Will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act, referring to Christ, resulted in justification and life for all people. And my favorite passage about this when it comes down to the practical application of this, what does it actually look like in real practical terms to live having been set free from the consequences of death? What does it look like to be in Christ and not have to live afraid of death anymore? This is what he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 13. Brothers and sisters, Paul writes, we do not want you to be uninformed about those, here we go again, who sleep in death, so that you may not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. What sets us apart from the rest of the world that we still grieve, right? Do we still grieve at the reality of death today? Of course we do. But we don't grieve like the rest of the world who have no hope. We can grieve in a different way. How do you grieve with hope as the background. And this is what he says. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. You've got a, a generation of Christians at the beginning here who are worried. What happens if Christ returns after these people I love have died in the Lord? Are they out of luck? 
Do they not get to face the reality of resurrection? And Paul saying, no, no. Even those who are asleep will be brought back to be with him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. God does not leave the dead dead. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord. Listen to what he says. So we will be with the Lord forever. There is no separating us from Christ. Even in death, we are not separated from our Lord. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. And I hope you were encouraged by those words this morning. And so we get back to our narrative, okay? If that's how Scripture encourages us to think about death, then how do we anticipate what's going to happen next in this story? Picking up in verse 17, back in John 11, on his arrival, so Jesus has brought the disciples with him, they've headed back to Bethany to tend to Mary and Martha. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. And when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. We'll talk about Mary's conversation with Jesus next week, but this morning we're going to end with Jesus' interaction with Martha. As she's grieving the loss of her brother, what does she have to say? Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You think about the faith that she's proclaiming in that statement. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. I know, she's saying, that you have the power to prevent death. But is that where his power ends? There's also, I think, in those words, the reminder that Jesus purposely waited for Lazarus to pass before he traveled back here. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know, she says, that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And I don't know what she's hinting at in her heart or what she's conceived of, but she knows for certain that Jesus could have prevented his death. What else can he do? Jesus said to her in response, your brother will rise again. And of that she's already certain. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. I know that resurrection awaits all of us. But Jesus isn't referring to resurrection as a future event in this moment. He's referring to resurrection as something he embodies and so this is his response. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Yes, resurrection is a future event we look forward to, but Martha, do you understand who you're talking to? I don't have to wait for that moment in time, Jesus says, because I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live. Even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? One of the only times in Scripture we have Jesus just come out and ask someone, 
Do you believe this? And listen to Martha's response. Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe. We often look at Peter's great confession in Matthew 16 is kind of the ultimate expression of faith in Christ. And I don't know why we ignore this one so much. Maybe because that's Peter and this is just Martha. But listen to what just Martha says here. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. And the question is, what can the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world, do with a dead man. And so I leave you with that. We'll come back next week and talk about the rest of the chapter. But for now, just one question, and it's this question that Jesus asked Martha. Do you believe this? If you believe this, and you've not yet acted on that faith, now is the time to do that. Now is the time. Are you ready to put Christ on in baptism? That passage that Ben read for us this morning out of Romans chapter 6 where Paul leans into death and our new relationship with death. When we are baptized into Christ, we join him in what? In his death. And also his what? Resurrection. Are you ready this morning to be buried in water, to rise in newness of life, to live in hope and anticipation of resurrection? Are you ready to live a life set free from the bondage of sin and death? Are you ready to embrace life? If you are, let us know. Let's make that decision together this morning. Will you let me know? Let's stand and let's sing together.